Thanks for listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. Today's episode is called Healing Body, Mind, and Soul, Hilbrandt Vestra and the Systemic Constellations Approach. Hannah sat down with Hilbrandt in Seoul after participating in one of his workshops for adoptees for an extended conversation that goes deep into feelings. They talk about the systemic approach, core issues that adoptees face, the path to healing, the limitations of conventional talking therapy for some adoptees, working specifically with men, and more. Before we get into it, we need to give you a content warning. This episode discusses adoptee suicide. So a bit about Hilbrandt. Hilbrandt was born in Seoul in 1969 and adopted to the Netherlands in 1973, together with his sister Jumin. His parents adopted a further six children from Korea, Indonesia, and Brazil. He studied human resources management and then worked for a number of well-known corporate firms. During this time, he was also significantly involved in the adoptee community as a leader and activist. In the early 2000s, he was introduced to systemic work and constellations, an integrated multi-dimensional form of somatic psychology that originated in Europe. This chance encounter would change the direction of his life. Over the following seven years, Hilbrandt trained to become a practitioner under the guidance of his German teacher. He now specializes in systemic work and constellations for adoption, foster care and migration issues, conducts workshops internationally, and trains other practitioners in this method. Hi, Hilbrandt. Thank you for agreeing to talk today. Um, I'm actually really excited to share your knowledge with our listeners. So this is the second time we've met. Yeah, that's true. Second time, yeah. (laughs) Because, so, you first offered um, one of your workshops, mm-hmm. kind of kind of like a, a taste, really. Yeah, yeah, something like a tasting thing, right? Yes. Uh, so that was two years ago in Seoul, and now you're back here, mm-hmm. um, and you've just facilitated um, a second, more intensive one of your workshops. Yep. Um, and I was, I was fortunate enough to participate both times. Mm-hmm. So, I know that your work, your therapeutic work, uses a combination of different methods, but yeah. um, I'm wondering if you can, if we can start with you just briefly explaining, mm-hmm. if, if that's possible. <laughs> yeah, I have to yeah. try to keep it briefly, right? So, <clears throat> the uh, systemic methodology is based on an integrated methodology of different kinds of approaches. Uh, it was founded in the 90s in Germany and... Soon the Netherlands took it over, and uh, in the Netherlands, Germany is quite popular right now. And uh, it's more or less based on the fact that we, as a human being, we experience a lot of things through our bodies. So mm. you could call it kind of a somatic psychology or something like this. Yes. yes. It's more based on what we experience on sensations and about how relationships work, and that we different in the way we communicate. Now we're just talking together, but we always share more than that. But the thing is that we're not always conscious about that. And the systemic approach tries to clear that idea that there is more than just communication by talking and maybe by watching each other, but the, the body also checks up about safety, security, and the surrounding. And just like we're sitting here, the sun is shining here, and we are alone in this building that creates also some kind of atmosphere and environment. And as a human being, you respond to that. Right. 
and also that we have been part of a system which is based literally on the DNA of our parents. So we also have, let's say, a bio data which is transferred by our genes. Yes. So it also forms us in a way. And in the Korean context, mm -hmm. um, you believe that what we inherit is a, a traumatic history, like personally and as a country. Yeah, that is my opinion, because I've, I see a lot of uh, commonality between Korean adoptees all around the world. Yes. Which is, in my opinion, based on a collective trauma, which has everything to do with Korea as a culture. Yeah. And sometimes we are not aware about that. So let's say, everybody, I think all the Korean adoptees who are a little bit known in the field of Korean adoptees know this kind of drama feeling, right? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. We, we talked uh, previously about the, the comparison with Italy, you remember? So it's also there, but also in Korea. So if you're not aware about that, then, then you only think that the feeling of drama, tragedy is a personal one. Yes. But if you understand the history of our Korean heritage, then that is not so easy to say because most probably we also responded to a part of unresolved trauma of our parents and our ancestors. Yes. And if you become aware about that, then the personal trauma also fades away a little bit. <laughs> it doesn't feel that personal anymore. Right. So just to paint a bit of a picture, mm -hmm. in the workshops that you do, mm -hmm. um, Everyone will start by sitting in a circle together with you mm -hmm. and, and then you use, um, I guess, role plays or um, images yeah. with, with people mm -hmm. and participants will represent important pig figures mm -hmm. in someone's family. Mm -hmm. That's, right? yeah. mm. That's nicely said. Images. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> because everyone has a kind of uh, understanding of internal images. Yes. Which is also quite common to human beings in general. That means we can respond to the same emotional dimensions of someone else. Um, it really surprised me. Like, I think, you know, when you imagine it without experiencing it, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you maybe feel a bit skeptical that a complete stranger can, um, can convincingly uh, represent, mm -hmm. say, <coughs> your adoptive mother or your birth mother or um, but it actually really really works <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. yes that's correct let's let's backtrack um, I want to just talk about your personal background mm -hmm. and um, your what happened in your life leading up to um, encountering this method mm -hmm. so <coughs> So you were adopted to the Netherlands. Yeah, correct. And uh, with your biological sister. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand that, like before you became a therapist, mm -hmm. I, I guess for, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. um, you were also quite no, we involved. We call it facilitator. Okay. Um, before that, you were working in human resources management yes, for, yes. for big corporate firms. Yeah, yeah. But you were also involved in the adoptee community. Yeah, correct. Since since 1989 already, so it's a long time. Wow. So this is like 30 years of yeah, yeah. of involved. So what? So you actually got involved with um, the adoptee community in the Netherlands when you were quite young. So you yeah. had this interest. 
Yeah, it started when I went to the United States in 89. I went to a summer school of um, international economics or something like this at a, at a college in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And my guest family was some kind of uh, mirroring my own adopted family in the Netherlands. They had also adopted uh, children from the same countries as ours. So mm-hmm. our uh, adopted family exists out of three countries, like South Korea, Indonesia, and Brazil. And they had the same kind of... Uh, um, adoptee groups in their own adoptive family. So that was kind of literally a mirror to me. It's a very strange coincidence, right? It's, yeah, what oh. is coincidence? For me, I found it quite strange. So I was asking myself, why do I experience this as a strange thing? Because I've been raised in a family like this. Yes. That, whole, that whole thing started in a way. Because I did not understand why I felt so shocked. Why yeah. I was raised in a family like that. Yeah. So, and the oldest green adoptees in that family, they were quite open and frank about their personal life history and what they experienced as an adoptee. And the oldest one was David. He was, I think, almost 10, or maybe he was already 10 when he was got adopted from Korea. So he right. remembered a lot of things. And suddenly something in my emotions also appeared like a reality, like, oh, but somehow I know this. And I, at least I felt the same way like them, right? Like John and David, and uh, they were so emotional. And I have never been crying about my adoption, not at least that I'm aware of. But suddenly I started crying like a baby, and I couldn't stop. So I was totally shocked about that. You said that you don't think it was a coincidence. No, no, not because of the systemic work. I know mm. there can hardly be a coincidence. Yes. You don't believe in coincidence? It's not even believing. I have seen so many facts in my work that I, I cannot get around it. The things appear in the way they have to appear. For example, for the development, for our personal development. Yeah, but also to become part of a better human being in a living society. And from the analytical perspective, you have always a choice to do good or to do evil. So what would you choose? Good, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully, right? Yeah. But it means also that you have to do a lot of things for yourself and to understand how you are and who you are and what you are and all these kinds of existential questions arises, right? That is quite difficult to answer them. But if you try to do it, then you suddenly get a kind of understanding how um, things work between time, space and matter. And because we work with a lot of kind of uh, topics like this in the systemic field, yes. then you also experience a lot of things which cannot be a coincidence anymore. It's all connected. Right. It's more, maybe it sounds a little bit metaphysical, but it goes in that way. Okay. <laughs> Let me say it. Yeah. You were working in the, the corporate field, mm-hmm. and then a friend introduced you to this kind of work. Yes. Um, so kind of, so it was kind of by chance, your, fr- your friend said, let's go to Germany, just come and try this workshop. Yeah, correct. And you didn't know much about no, it at that time. I only read some time. articles about it, that was all. Yeah. And you were a little bit um, skeptical, right? Yeah, yeah, that is true. I was, maybe I was even quite skeptical. <laughs> um, so can you describe... Uh, your first experience with this kind of work? I came in Germany and uh, it was three days, Friday afternoon, Saturday and Saturday and Sunday. 
And uh, the first day I felt a little bit awkward because they were sitting in uh, in, in round and um, the, the the facilitator Wolfgang he uh, started with the meditation hmm. and of course I knew a little bit about meditative uh, approaches but the way he did was totally different. Um, How did he do it? I'm curious. Many people have this concept about meditation. You close your eyes, you're gonna sit in this typical Asian. <laughs> Like a lotus yeah, position. Yeah, like a lotus position, right. something like that. But this is keep your eyes open, put your both legs on the floor, uh, regulate your breathing, try to feel your whole body and try to be conscious here. Yeah. And I was thinking, but what does he mean by saying try to be conscious here? Because does it mean that in general you're not conscious? So mm -hmm. it already started in the first minutes of the whole setting. So, um, and I felt directly, in a way, at ease, while normally in this kind of settings I always try to uh, scan the whole group and feel if I'm secured or not. Mm. But this time I was just like, okay, let's, let's do it and see what happens. Do you think you sense something from, from him as a facilitator that put also, you at yes, ease? Very much, yes. yeah, very much, yeah. I think he's the only one in my life I ever would voluntarily call my teacher. Mm. Yeah, of course, at school he had also teachers, but it's not really voluntarily, right? <laughs> but I think right. he was so important in my life that I mm. think, yeah, yeah, I would like to honor him by calling him my teacher. Yeah. Okay, so, and then what happened for you during the rest of that weekend? Uh, I saw people telling things I was totally shocked about because... Normally, I'm quite secluded about my own private life. I'm not easy to tell anything about it, and certainly not about my real deep feelings, right? Yes. And people just did it, like... And so quickly, right? Yeah, so quickly. That's what <laughs> really impressed me with the method, too. Yeah. It goes to the heart of things yeah. very quickly. Yeah. So now you know a little bit what I experienced, like, yeah. huh? What's happening here? Why am I? Why am I doing this? Why I am also doing it? Right? Yeah, yes. And I felt so touched in a way, and I was. But also, I, I love the combination between philosophy, psychology, emotional body work, and meditation, uh, moving the body, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I was really intrigued about this all. Yeah. I think the other beautiful thing is um, working in a group like that is you witness this vulnerability exactly. and this openness from other exactly. people which is also is, is so touching yes it's very touching um, and, you, and you know you relate so much to things that other people are struggling mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. yeah. yeah do you think at that point um, so d during like when you facilitate your workshops mm -hmm. you're also quite open with your own your own personal struggles when you when you were younger um, and like had you already tried other kinds of therapy before you yeah all kinds of different of uh, the clinical approach I, I think I almost tried everything <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that too sometimes <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, not because I felt necessary always to do that, but also I was curious if what works and what doesn't work. Yes. So I think I tried so many different methodologies. Yeah. Right. Mm. So in a way, I, maybe you had been preparing, you had been doing other kinds of things to prepare yourself to 
Yeah, because Launch I would, yeah this. I wanted to understand what 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 can you buy in this world of therapy because there are so mm. many different kinds of approaches, right? Mm. Can you tell me? You've you've mentioned this. Like, do you think that our traditional Western talking therapy, mm. psychology and counseling, mm. do you think that is limited and particularly for adoptees? That are three different questions. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Which one do you want to start with? Um, well, I want to talk about uh, your your experience with that. You know, what we know is basic talking therapy. Um, let's say verbal therapies like um, psychoanalysis or something. Yeah, or as, CBT, as example, or, yeah, or, uh, CBT even or, uh, or uh, mindfulness-based cognitive yeah. therapy. It's still cognitive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that is exactly why it is lacking in a way too. I think the things we experience as a human being uh, is more focused on the emotional uh, body uh, memory instead of our cognitive and mental memory set yeah I think and um, what I found out also that if you are quite intelligent as in, let's say let me be careful here because people might uh, take this in a different way than what I want to explain with this what I found out that if you take the whole group of inter-country adoptees hmm. especially the adoptees from Asia for example the Korean adoptees are quite smart yeah. that means also they already developed a lot of um, cognitive and mental strategies, how to cope with yes. uh, emotional burdens. Yes. So in that way, they can also get around the whole topic of what is really happening in themselves. So in my opinion, psychology in general doesn't really help for them. Mm. So and, uh, it doesn't directly do a process on what is inside and what is happening in their bodies. So as a means of survival, because we have developed um, yeah, various cognitive and emotional strategies yeah, exactly. to, um, to control our, our exactly. feelings. And, yeah, exactly. um, and we to regulate, to control, to enhance certain kinds of behavior, etc. Yes. So it's, it's easy basically to um, evade oh, yeah, they a, do, actually. a regular a psychologist. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. In my workshop, the Korean adaptees are quite strong in that. Yes. Compared to the adoptees from different countries. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then the psychologist um, is sometimes like, oh, what's wrong with you? You seem fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's exactly what my first psychologist said. He said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're quite structured in your head and you know what you're talking about. And you have seems a job. To be, you can cope with Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everything's going well. Huh? So what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. And the other issue is that... Um, Sometimes therapists want to learn from us mm -hmm. about the adoptee experience and about things like birth, family, search, reunion, mm -hmm. but then they don't know how to help us specifically. No. Yeah. Actually, most of the times we are the guinea pigs for them. Yeah. Huh? Unfortunately. Yeah. We actually interviewed an Australian psychologist, mm -hmm. uh, a, a counsellor on mm -hmm. um, our podcast mm -hmm. earlier this year mm -hmm. and I asked them a question um, because they specialise in working with adoptees and adoptive families and I said, um, what are common, common issues that adoptees come to you with? Mm -hmm. And I was a little bit disappointed because I felt that uh, this 
this therapist was a bit afraid of saying the wrong thing. So they okay. kind of evaded that question. So I want to ask you the same so you question. Want to, you want to try with me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually already from looking at, at your website, um, mm -hmm. I, I can help you. <laughs> oh, okay. I can, but, um, yeah. So are you looking for commonalities with referring to behavior or state of emotions yes uh, for experienced by adaptees right? yes Something for example like one of the things on your website was issues with either staying or leaving yeah yeah not being able to move or um i guess impulsively moving yeah it has everything to, it has it has everything to do with the topic of belonging yeah. So what we found out by working with migrants in Europe and also in the Netherlands. Yes. And also in the uh, migrative psychology, because there's not much to read about psychology for adoptees, but uh, there's much more about uh, effects of migration in the psychology. Ah, uh, okay. So you see the same kind of issues by, yes. if you're not willing to literally choose at, at a certain age to say okay this is my life and I'm going to stay here and I'm going to build something which is important based on on, uh, on the future then um, most possibly you start wondering I mean you do not what we call in that anchoring anchoring yes um, because that means also that you have to decide that what has happened to you to look into that and saying <coughs> What happened was not that nice, and it made me the way who I am right now. But I decide upon to create something of my life right now, and that means also that many adoptees they or they stay because they're afraid to leave, yeah, or they leave because they're afraid to stay. Yes, and that means also this kind of dynamic called um, I'm looking for the right word in English. It's like. Um, I have a home but no country, and I have a country but no home. For example, Korea is a country, yeah. but we do not have a home here anymore. No. And maybe in the, the country you have been adopted to, you have a home, but no country. So that is kind of split off intrinsically. This means that something inside of your body says, you should leave or you should go. Hmm. Or for, I mean, you should leave or you should stay. Yes. And that's an intrinsic dynamic you see almost in every adoptee group. It doesn't matter where they come from. Right. And that's the same thing with migrants too, because if they migrated, they not always settle directly, nor for the future. There's always a part inside of them telling, oh, maybe I can go back, or maybe I should uh, visit my family and stay there. Yes. So many migrants, uh, especially the last hundred years, they never really choose as a group to stay. So there's always an intrinsic movement going on, this must also be um, the consequence that, they, that, that their children feel a little bit awkward because if they choose to stay, then they will leave or they will uh, lose their parents in a way. And if the parents want to stay and the children want to go back to the families of origin, that means all that, also that they split up. Yes. So, and I found the same kind of dynamic within the adoptee groups too. That's why I suddenly um, saw it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think this conflict between staying or leaving mm -hmm. um, also manifests, say, in committing to other things in your life, like a job or committing to... Um, yeah, that has direct influence to these kind of topics, like yeah. relationships, uh, family building, uh, yes. jobs, etc. 
whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Because if if you feel like you have to go every time, you're going you're not going to hold your job for a long time or for a future perspective, right? Yeah. You just have the job because you need to earn money or something like that. Yeah. And the same thing with partnerships also. That many of them they have. Let's be honest. Many of us have problems with relationships. Oh yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yes, I guess the, the staying or leaving is also, uh, and the, the issue with commitment, um, that would obviously impact yeah. relationships. Yes, exactly. If we talk about relationships f for a little bit, um, I guess what have you found in your work with adoptees? That most of them, they have unbalanced relationships. Unbalanced. Mm -hmm. Or they give too much or they take too much. Right. Or they fear, or they say they do not fear, but that act, they act like they have fear. Fear was, of a separation or yeah, abandonment. Of, yeah, for example, I've met a lot of Korean uh, adoptees, especially, for example, males. They say, oh, I don't fear to have a love relationship with women. And when we start talking about that and we go into the deep, then I say, but what I hear is only fear. There's nothing less than fear. Right. And then they, they most times get a little bit shocked because they've never been thinking like that. Yes. Can I turn it back on you? Of course, second? of course, yeah. Did you struggle with relationships, like say, you know, when you were younger? Like I know that I, you're I thought, I thought happily I, married I, now. I, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I didn't, but actually, if I'm honest, yes, I did have a lot of troubles. Yeah. yeah. And that was also kind of dissociation, right? But thinking, hmm, I'm just a normal guy. Nothing yeah. wrong with me. Everybody has something with relationships, right? You can yeah. generalize and think, what's so special about relationships and being adopted? But uh, I have a different opinion about it now. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you now, in hindsight, you can... I mean, did you... Do you think your tendencies was, was to leave re relationships quickly or either... Not or to take reluctance? care of others too much. Uh, yeah. And when it came to real, deeper, mature connections, then I left. Right. Yes. When it went in that level that someone can touch your heart really deeply and touch yeah. your soul, then you start considering why should I stay? <laughs> because it. Um, do you think it's because it's it's so it's scary exactly. to be scary. seen so deeply? Exactly. And then. Uh, but then um, you're you're afraid if you lose that if you you don't want to get used to it or something because if you lose it it, it would be too much. What we found out that um, what happened with us as a child, let's say the child trauma, that causes the uh, biggest conflict to um, to be aware of what that did with what what happened with our bodies when we decided unconsciously to close down. Because what we know now by trauma development of young people is that if they have an experience which is so hurtful and they feel so harmed by it, yeah. there's something in the body says, I do not want to feel this ever again in my life. Yes. So something inside of them decides I gonna close down forever. Yeah. But the thing is that that is more a mental state of decision, but at, at the level of feelings, uh, we've been talking about vibration and frequencies, that if someone is able to touch on that level of vibration, it's really hard to keep it closed down. 
and then you would like to open it because you want to you want to laugh right you want to um, able to to uh, to share this with your partner but at the same time this this unconscious feeling of fear which refers to the first pain about that yes says don't do that because maybe this time it will be even more worse than the first time and that's what we call post-traumatic stress many yes. <laughs> adoptees they, are str they feel stressed in relationships while it should give them a little bit more fun and more relaxation but <laughs> the opposite happens more often yes because well in my experience it's i think it's it's fear of the end even before even when it's just beginning i think it's this yeah oh, yeah from the existential perspective we always say it's is is the is the direct um let's say the direct contact with death yes oh, i've never heard that yeah. because what you just said is correct we fear of death when when let's let's presume we would start a relationship and yep. we would uh, promise each other to open our hearts as deep as possible. Right. Then the first question comes up, okay, if I open it, who will promise me that this will not end? Yes. And this ending has nothing to do with you and me in a, as a couple. It has everything to do, if it ends, where am I? Yes. Um. Because many adoptees, they... Um, close down their hearts and their souls because they want to um, create a new me, a new I, who they can totally control. Right. But in an effective, an affectionate relationship, you have to uh, be open and vulnerable. So you have to give it away. Yeah. Oh, but didn't I promise myself not to do this anymore? <laughs> mm. And then you, then you appear and you ask me to love me and to, to love you. And then, hmm, I'm not sure if I'm willing to do that. <laughs> Yeah. Even though if I would say I would, doesn't mean that I literally would do or would like it. Right. Because that means also I have to surrender. Yeah. And it's so much of a risk, basically. Exactly. Yeah. That's it's, yeah. Uh, if you think about it, that it sounds like a risk, but in my opinion, it's the best thing you can ever do. Mm. Because it's better for your body, it's better for your heart, it's better for your soul. So it means also that you have to take that risk. Yeah. In a way, love relationships are always a kind of enterprise. You never know where it ends, right? So you should give your best. And then you can say, at least I mm -hmm. give my best. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Yeah. At least you learn something and you experience the most important things in your life. I think, um, I mean, when I go back to my first little adult relationship mm -hmm, when mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. about 19 and I just remember that breakup mm -hmm. I did not understand what was happening but I definitely had the sense that my response to this breakup after such a short relationship was it was like some other grief mm -hmm. that was being expressed mm -hmm. um, and I think I think if you have that experience it makes you afraid of of breakups and relationships ending because you're like but all this emotion is going to come up and I don't know how to deal with that well I mean, you know then I had no idea how to deal with that no but are you sure you were mature at that time no no oh. exactly so what does it refer to to your childhood or to be an adult that was a childlike relationship yeah, and, uh, well, yeah. what did we experience as a mm -hmm. child oh t I think total fear and chaos exactly yeah so mm -hmm. what we 
sometimes help in a partner relationship is that 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 partner will save us from uh, to happen like that again, right? Yes. But he or she will not because it has everything to do with you, not with the other person. So after you did this workshop, mm -hmm. um, so you would have been, I don't know, early, mid-30s mm -hmm. when you mm -hmm. encountered the work. Yeah. Um, and then this set you off on a, a path of, um, I guess, intensive self, yeah. self work. Yeah, self searching, self reflecting, everything. Was it difficult? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was quite difficult. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it wasn't, but looking back, I think uh, it was really, really terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and um, and so you studied this method for for about seven years yeah. intensively. Yeah. Yeah. How did you change as a person during that time, or how can you see that your life changed as a result of doing the work? What I have seen and experienced myself, if you really want to get into this work, you cannot get around the fact that. You can only be successful in this work if you are willing and understanding that uh, this work is so vulnerable. Mm. So you, ha you, you have to be able and also willing to give yourself 100%. That means that everybody will directly see when you're not, uh, not authentic in this work and will directly see that what you're telling is true or not. So you have to develop your personality in such a way that that everyone, yeah, that everyone who's um, in contact with you can feel safe, not knows that he or she is safe, but that they can feel safe. And safety is only based on the fact that uh, how safe are you? You can only give safety the, at the level as the level you are safe for yourself. So, in my opinion, if you want to be good in this work, you have to understand yourself quite well. Also the dark parts. <laughs> right. And then I found out I had many and I did not want to look into that. So that's why I said it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, did you have a lot of support from like your main teacher or yeah, partner and things course, at yeah. that time? No, no, my partner's not, no. Right. I had different partners at that time. Right. Um, they were intrigued by it, but they also feared that it, somehow because they also felt that uh, it changed the way I looked at relationships too. So also at them mm. as a partner. So it was not very easy for them. Right. Do you generally find that that um, people that participate in this work, mm -hmm. um, that it's difficult for their partners? Yeah, if they're not involved in the process, it's many times very difficult for the partners. And that's one of the reasons why I have also uh, workshop with partners so they yeah. know a little bit about what happens in this process. Yeah. Do you think that ultimately by doing the work um, it changed, it improved um, your relationships, it improved your way, to, um, way of being in relationships? Yes, I, yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. More balanced, more mature, I think. More that I understood but also others that a relationship at the first place is a responsibility of your own, not the other. Yes. And also you have to take courage to tell the truth and be honest. Mm. Even though that your partner or 
your loved one or your spouse will run away because you have to take that risk. Mm. And also that you have to understand that your life is your ownership. So you, you, you have to be responsible for your actions too. Mm. No, that last part is not that easy. <laughs> Talking about this easy, no. but taking ownership for your actions. Wow, that is something. Yeah. How do you think you learn how to do that? Just practice like a muscle or? Yeah, you have to practice every day and you have to, it's, it's an automatic thing because I always reflect my, my days, like oh, what happened today and what did I do wrong or what did I didn't do wrong. And it's not about good or bad, but just about, hey, what, what is the sensitivity of the day? What, what did I feel? What did I, didn't I feel? What did I sense? What didn't I sense? So it's also um, giving uh, food to your soul and to your body. So you mean at the end of every day mm -hmm. you ref you reflect back? Yeah, but not on only yourself. by mind, but also by my body. Like, mm. what did I feel today? How was that? Was my body in balance? And what about my heart? Did it respond in a healthy way? Or etc. etc. So that's part of this approach. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yes. That self-reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you keep in touch with your body the whole day. Right, yeah. yes. Instead of only with your yeah. head. <laughs> so basically, um, to maintain that heightened sense of self-awareness, mm -hmm. body, mind and heart, yeah. all the time. Yes. That's the, that's because the work. Because that, that's yeah. the tool I work with, so I have mm. to take care of that part, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, so that has some similarities with other... Eastern spiritual traditions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The school was based uh, partly on Taoism. Right. So that's also um, where I feel comfortable with. Yeah. And this means the non-dual approach, trying not to have any judgment about things in life and also especially not about experience of people's life. Yeah. So that was really important to learn because I also understood that we, as human beings, we experience sometimes the most terrible things. And because of that, we act upon, which is not very nice to others, but I do understand. So I'm not easily to judge about someone else anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so I can take the way they, they feel or what they think they should have felt. Or, and most times the clients feel quite safe because they know that they will not judge them, whatever they did. Yes. I think that what else um, struck me about you during the workshops is that mm -hmm. um, you're very honest. I'm <laughs> in a and honest about your own experience, and then you you want to be honest, completely honest with the other person as mm -hmm. well. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, and cut to the <laughs> the heart of the yeah. of the issue. Um, would you say? Um, sorry, a slight tangent, but. Do you think your your ability to to be with people fully in when they're very emotional mm -hmm. that's because you've been there yourself and you've explored uh, those those kind of overwhelming feelings mm -hmm. within yourself mm -hmm. How do you think that adoptees and and just anyone really can feel like how can we feel more comfortable with our own emotions you know when even when they're extreme or they feel like they're never going to end how can we 
the first learn not to be afraid of that. Yeah. The first thing you can learn as an NFT is uh, learning that it sounds maybe a little bit strange, but um, the way you are is totally okay. And everything what happens and happens in your life and also inside your body and the emotions who are there are part of your belonging. And sometimes it just comes up and sometimes it just goes away. So uh, being with that is a very important lesson, not to walk or to run away from it when things appear within yourself. And never forget that there's always a loving side of it. Um, many times we forget when we feel fear or we feel sad or we feel depressed. That there's that is a function of our body. So if you do the flip side and ask yourself, okay, for example, when I feel depressed, uh, for whom or to whom is this a good function? So if I would not be depressed who would suffer or why would someone suffer or maybe should I suffer myself in the long run? So every emotional response of our body is always a function of something and has always a flip side. Meaning if you understand that the function is not necessary anymore, then you can change. Mm. But sometimes you will also find out that the, the interest and the function and the time frame is not there yet. So you have to wait until it can really transform. That is easy to do for many people. Only you have to practice it, like everything. <laughs> if you don't practice, you will never learn. For example, to make it a little bit more clear, I think, is that I have been asking for many years, what is my fear? Right. And who do I fear? And why do I fear? So mm. this is a mental game, right? We, we just start in question, but we never turn or flip it. Like, okay, uh, let's say if I start with the question, who do I fear? Then the first question should appear, what is the function of this question? Because if I would not fear anyone, what would happen then? Oh, what would happen if I would not fear anyone anymore, including myself? I would be feel more light, I feel more happy, I feel be more accessible, I feel more enlightened maybe. Um, should I um, present this, this reality to myself or not? And the question arises quite quickly, yes, I would like to have that. And then Third question arises like, oh, how, how can I uh, do it like this? And so the result will become like that. So it's an automatic process, a response to a basic question, if I would not, or to whom does this belong, or do I respond to something which is a personal thing, or a collective thing, or a familiar thing. So you start restructuring the, the expressions and experiences you have. And that makes it quite clear and more, I think, flexible for your mindset, maybe. But you've also mentioned that um, you feel that adoptees have a lot of stored stored trauma, grief, especially. um, Correct. And that it's important to fully release that. Yeah, that's the issue, right? Not to do this partly, but to do this fully. Many are afraid to do that, so they, maybe sometimes they do just partly. Yeah. Because that is still to control. <laughs> but what would happen if you would allow yourself to fully grieve? It's hard to even picture that. Exactly. And then the question would arise, okay, if you would picture that, 
to whom would it be important and who would feel, who would feel resolved or enlightened when you do that? You or someone else? Me. I, yeah, yeah. So that means that if the answer is you, why would you not do that? And for who is that a function? Mm. Oh, everyone. Everyone exactly. will feel more comfortable. If exactly. Understand this flip side. Right. Yeah. But I think you know we uh, we don't have safe spaces, or we don't we don't feel safe sometimes, even within like intimate relationships, to express those things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And of course, everyone understands this mm. because I think most of us they have this experience or had this experience or know how this works. Yeah. But the thing is, you can ask yourself: you want to repeat that story? Or you want to repeat a new story, and I decided one day I do not want to repeat the same story over and over again. So mm -hmm. I want to stop that, and that means that you have to go to the core of the issue. And the core is that, at least I never really learned to grieve and how to do that, and what would happen if I would like to do that. Mm -hmm. So when I went into that process, I was totally shocked about mm -hmm. how much emotions I had because I was thinking, my God, I'm not a woman. <laughs> I, yeah. And that has nothing, of course, nothing to do with being a woman or a man, but I think we are so afraid to, to, to access this source of pain and this source of grief. Mm. But once you have done that, it feels so much enlightened and clean and yeah. bright. And you know, oh, I should have done this earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've mainly done that within these groups, within yeah. these systemic yeah. groups. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And of course, also in, in, in private time. I mean, yeah. I listen to many griefing music and also did read a lot about trauma. Right. So that I also understood what happened and why it happened. Uh, so I let me fully in this area. And yeah. yeah. Without any shame and hesitation, just I stepped into it and decided, okay, I'm going to do this. Do you think you reached some, like, what was that point? Do you rem do you remember a point in your life where where you consciously said that to yourself? I don't want to repeat this same story. Mm -hmm. no, it's not literally like that, but it's more like um, it was connected to this question: Do you want to be to do good or to be good or to be bad? And just what you said, I said, okay, if I'm able to do good, why don't I do that? Or who or what is stopping me from doing it? Many times the answer came up, it's me who's doing it and who's stopping it because I'm afraid. And that was not something I like to hear from myself, that I was afraid because generally I'm not a person who's easily afraid. But at that level I had to admit, oh gosh, I'm afraid. I fear. As a person, just look, like, let's say we have a coffee, we talk about fear, and um, I would say, no, I'm not, I'm not afraid, I'm quite... Mm someone who dares to go into something, but at the level of emotional understanding and also the physical emotional understanding, then suddenly I found out I feared myself quite a lot. So I didn't fear people, but I feared myself somehow. That's quite a strange uh, experience, right? Right. So you can, at, at that level, you cannot blame anyone else anymore. It's, then you have to go inside and search for your own parts which you never really ever resolved. And of course you can think about it by mind, but feeling this process was quite 
like, oh my god, am I going to die or something? Because it also touches literally your, your physical state of being. Yes. So, yeah, it's quite hard actually. So you did many, many workshops over many years. Yes, yes, yes of course. And with each su successive workshop, does the work kind of go deeper? Yeah, especially the first five years because it's quite new. Right. Yeah, so, but uh, the last, let's say, I started in 2003, so we're 10 years. So it's almost 17 years so right now. Wow, yeah. So... It still touches me because now I can say that I can see there is so much love between human beings and between us as species. Yeah. That makes me always wondering that if you discover there is so much possibility of love among human beings, why are we not willing to develop that more? And the answer is because we fear. <laughs> so it comes back to the first experience I had. I fear because that means that that I have to admit that I was not always be honest about things in my life and I was not always honest in my relationship, I was not always honest about money, I was not always honest by uh, how I looked into the world, I was not honest always about how I felt about my family members, all these things. The, and then I got into this and then I felt, okay, if I'm really be honest about it, am I dying? And I, I experienced, no, I'm not, I'm not dying, I'm still here. So also this fear might also be sometimes an illusion. It's an illusion of fear. Mm -hmm. And of course, yeah, and that might be, is the fear what many adoptees have. If I will be honest and truthful to myself, I will lose people. And my answer is yes, you will lose people. Right. <laughs> because not everyone is willing to listen to that. Yeah. Not everyone is willing to follow like that. And not everyone is willing to see that why this is important. So people say, Oh, I not want to stay uh, in contact with you or be your friend. But in my case, the friends I had always stayed. So I had a good friendship with a lot of people. Yeah. But the superficial contacts I always had all, all around the world, yeah, many of them they went away, of course, because they thought, oh, this goes too deep. Hilbrand is too philosophical. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's not here at this earth anymore. I said, no, I'm yeah. really... I'm quite here, but come on, it's, it's, the, the idea, like let's say the international fashion, uh, how you call this, this gathering with all these women in the, in the world? Oh, those Miss World. Kind yeah, yeah. Of, like, they, are, they always pageants. ask this woman, what do you want? And they say, oh. we want peace in the world, right? Right. I said, oh my God, not again. Because the answer is, if you want peace in the world, mm -hmm. you have to create peace for yourself. Yeah. That's the easiest yes. way to do. And because of that, you can contribute the best thing in the world, being in peace with yourself. Yeah. And that's what I found, more or less. Mm. It reminds me of when someone asked you, like, how can I support younger adoptees who are struggling? And I think part of your answer was just by being an example yourself mm. of, someone, um, of someone who has resolved certain personal things and is... And also that you have to, yeah. Yeah. And mm. also you have to understand, and that makes it sometimes hard for adoptees especially, and that might sound also in general quite crazy, is that I say always to my students and to other people, everyone has the right to suffer. The right to suffer. Yeah. Because those adoptees who want to help uh, 
uh, young adoptees, most times, it's about suffering. They want to prevent suffering. Right. <laughs> but my second question is, how much did you resolve your own suffering? Hmm. Many of them, they have no answer to that. So uh, why do you want to help younger kids? Because you do not even know how to solve your own suffering. Yeah. So you only want to stop it. So they're helping you. Mm, right. And that is not a thing we should want to, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same they say that with, with people who want to become therapists, right? It's yeah. like, how much of you... Why are you doing this? Because they need themselves to solve their own issues, but they do not want that. So that's the reason why they want to help other people. As a way of um, evading, kind of almost running away from your own issues. <laughs> yeah, that's the reason why, for a long, long time, I did not want to practice this work. Right. Because I thought, that first, there are so many of them already. Yeah. The second, I not really like them, many of them. So I other facilitators. Yeah, other facilitators. <laughs> because I was quite critical in this field. Yeah. And uh, I thought, okay, they will compare me with those people, and I do not want to be those people. Hmm. So it took a long while before I decided, okay, I have something to add to this field, and I'm going to do it. Yes, yeah. but I mean, but you always admired your your teacher. Yes. Um, but he was one of a kind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I tried to find someone like him again, but it didn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So I was looking at your website, mm -hmm. and you have a painting mm -hmm. of um, a traditional Korean painting mm -hmm. of a, um, a mother um, carrying carrying her child mm -hmm. on her back. Yeah. Yeah. In the traditional, like the Korean way. Yes. Um, and and there's a quote quote is yesterday I was looking for my mom and mm -hmm. today I'll deny that I'll do it again tomorrow yeah did you write that yes I wrote that can you um, can you explain why you chose that painting and and that quote um, for the main page oh, yeah. of your website of course I'm willing to do that but I'm more curious what what did it to you when you read and saw it oh um, it hit me you know, especially this, the combination, both the painting and the quote together. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I think that's true that, I, you know, I heard another similar quote a mm -hmm. while ago about how it's like with our mother, you know, even in the womb, mm -hmm. that was the first place where we really belonged, where we fit. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. in, in, and so in some ways we're <laughs> always... Um, on some level, we're always looking to return there. Exactly. Yeah, to that uh, safety and that belonging mm -hmm. and that connection, that level of connection. Yeah. Yeah, and if you would like to go back to that point, then you have to admit that it was broken. Right. And because it was broken too early and too severe, while we're still searching for our omas, but it's so difficult to express and to talk about it and because of that we will do the same process tomorrow again that's the reason why I wrote this quote it's kind of past, present, future hmm. and, and if you do not break this cycle at a certain point it all starts again so the quote is it's about the um, 
Well, it's interesting. Even the painting, it's, there's like yeah, three I want, figures. I, I want to tell people because it's a beautiful, uh, it's one of the most intriguing paintings from Korea, it's uh, Park Sun Kun. Okay. And um, I loved this one too, but I loved many uh, of his work. Oh, okay. It's really, you should look into that because yeah. it's really interesting. Because it was so clear when I saw this picture. Like, right. it's so profound Korean also. Yes. It also presents the, the closeness between mother and child. And, yes. Um, I think many of us would love to have this kind of experience again, that we would be on the back of our mothers when she's walking down the field or whatsoever, just in the rhythm of her walking. That's what, as a child, you, you love, because this is the most closest uh, since you've been born. Yes. And when that is feared, there's just something really, really deep with us as a human being. Mm. Yeah. So the quote, um, it's kind of, the, the quote is about how um, we will have this unconscious pattern un unless we become conscious of it. Exactly. Yeah. Then we have a choice. But if we don't, do not become conscious about this, then we're going to repeat it somehow. Mm -hmm. Is it not in a relation between us and our adoptive family? Then it will be with our partners. Or right. looking for such a kind of partner. Yes, looking for um, a, a permanent, all-loving, like uh, all... Uh, Continuous love. Right? Yes, like a, a parent type, yeah. Yeah. Um, motherly love. Yes, that's sick. <laughs> that I will yeah. fall in her lap and f fall asleep because I yes. feel so safe. Yes, right. So the full body can mm. relax. Mm. But who who would like to admit that when you're <laughs> mature, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why I think in my in my own life I've been um, so so dependent at times on those few people that I feel completely safe with it's so because it's because such a deep, profound feeling. Yes, and that's what we need because that's. The only way when our body is in a state of full relaxation. Yeah. But th but in reality, people cannot be there for us all not, the not time when level. we want them. No. Yes. Yeah. As an, as an adult, we will have these moments once a while, mm -hmm. but not continuously, right? Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to, um, to something else you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So... These days you're doing a lot of specific work with uh, adoptee men, is that right? Uh, not only, but that is one of my, yeah. uh, uh, how you say this, niches. Uh, yes. Yeah. Actually, I think that's so important because, there, you know, in general there aren't many um, male facilitators and, and therapists, right? It's, it's a, quite a, you know, it's a yeah, female-dominated... Yeah, yeah. Nowadays yeah. it's become quite female-dominated yeah. uh, profession. Yeah. Mm. In the past, it was the opposite, of course, but... Uh, right. Yeah. Um, do you feel that men often, like, benefit from having a male facilitator or therapist? Uh, the funny thing is that what I hear is many men, if they're looking for a therapist, a facilitation, or coach, or counselor, that they're primarily looking for a woman. Ah, oh, okay. So that's also very interesting. Right. <laughs> Meaning, if it's about feelings and emotions, that they see this as a female 
issue. Mm, mm. So I started a few years working with men, males, mm. not especially adopting males, but just males in general. Yeah. And I felt such a relief of those men working with the men. And they never really felt that before. So this group is growing in the Netherlands, yes. also in Germany a little bit. And uh, so working with men by men becomes much more important nowadays. Right. And I love to do it actually. I started also loving men and that's maybe an issue we should talk about. Yeah. It's not that I hated men or something, but I think in the Western world, uh, loving men is being seen like a homophobic issue. Right. You should not touch men, you should not love them, you should not... Only women are allowed to love them or you have to be a gay. But just as men, loving other men because they're beautiful human beings is something which is quite new. That is so important because we should be an example for others. Right. We can only show what we have to give if we are able to live our wish to be a good man, right? So to be a good man is to also to love other men. But I also found out that I was indoctrinated by when it comes about uh, relationships and love, that I was always looking up to women, not to men. And now when I'm walking around, I can look at men like, oh, they're great human beings. It's nice to see them. That is quite new for me, especially last 10 years, because I've never done that before. Yeah. Meaning we, as men, we also exclude other men of being loved by men. I don't know if I can, like, I don't understand. If I'm not willing to accept that, that it's important for me that I should be loved by other men too, yes. then only see them as competitors, right. or right. as perpetrators, yes. or enemies. Yeah. And that yeah. creates a picture that every man is a potential enemy, a potential perpetrator, yes. and a potential competitor. Mm. And that means that you go always in flight-fight mode. Right, right. And this is not healthy. Yeah. And so meaning that becoming aware about that means also that I became aware that I excluded men in my life. Mm. Yes. But other men excluded me also as a man outside yeah. of their lives. We only talked about things which are quite safe, but never about who we really are. Okay. And I think it's really important that we're going to start talking about who we really are and what we're doing and why we're doing things. Because what I found out was quite astonishing. I've, I think that many men in this world, they feel so lonely. Right. And they feel so excluded of everything. Excluded. Um, love, attention, mm. um, to have effective relationships, to yeah. being loved by other people, not from a sexual point of view, just in general, to being loved, I think it's so important. Do you think that's just because, uh, because of the societal expectations of men that you grow up, um, you grow up closing parts of yourself that you, you don't, that it's just not acceptable to be vulnerable. Also that, but this has also to do with the fact that, uh, especially since World War II, men have been seen as potential warmongers. Right. And, uh, like that we, all of us, like men as a group, uh, are willing to rape women and that we try to make them submissive. And that's not true. Mm. And when I start talking with my groups, which I, I, I present and give in the Netherlands, uh, 
um, when we talk about love relationships and couples, that we found also that many women do not really, really love men. They really have a picture of love, but they don't, as a human being, when you start talking, do you love me as a human being? Then they start hesitating. So it's not only about men to men, but also yeah. many women do not really love men. Do you mean that they, um, so they have a picture of um, what a male partner should should be, Yes. but they're not willing to fully accept like everything about that partner exactly. as a human being. Exactly. Like the, the more vulnerable parts or the dark parts. Exactly, or the, yeah. Yeah. What do you think typically is that, that picture? What do you think that picture is that they want, um, that they think that their male partner should be? Oh, that's quite, quite interesting because I thought last 25 years a lot of things would have changed, right? Right. But actually it's not that much changed. Many women still want to have a strong man who can protect them, yes. can raise a healthy and safe family. Yeah. Still, this picture about the nuclear family setting. Yes, and this kind of, you mean like this kind of old-fashioned, um, this it's macho old fashioned, masculinity, yeah, right? Yeah, like you can have, to have that if you, if you exactly if you would like to have this picture of a real masculinity, of masculine uh, men. That means also that he will not be available to provide for your family because real masculine men are not interested to create families. Right. <laughs> They want to so like what do you want as a woman? You want that something? man or you want that man? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're very confused. That's true. <laughs> uh, certainly, we are. Yeah. But we as men are also confused. Mm. But when are we talking about it? We are almost never talking about this. Yeah. We're both confused, but we do not know that you are confused, but you do not know that we are confused. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all confused, right? Have you also... Um, have you worked with groups of just adoptee men? Yeah, male men. Yeah. I, I provide once a year a group. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you find that they feel more comfortable amongst only men than compared it's, to a mixed it starts, group? It starts coming, yeah, it starts coming. Yeah, most mm -hmm. of them, and that is also uh, the masculine thing, but also has to do with being adopted, that, uh, about vulnerability and about lacking love. They, yeah. they rather share this with women than with men. Oh, okay. There, right. we go, there we go again, right? So okay. Because they're partly also looking for women who can be their mothers or the replacement of, huh? the substitute of the missing mothers. Right. So what they see or looking for in a girlfriend is like that. Okay. And the same happens to, of course, those uh, adoptive women too, that they uh, are constantly looking for their fathers. Mm. It's quite Freudian. Even though many people do not like Freud's perspective on that, but actually it happens. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's kind of fallen out of favor, yeah. Freud. <laughs> but if you look into his work deeply, not just superficial, then yeah. he, he created and he wrote a lot of different and also very deep, profound stuff about this. Mm. Of course, a little bit outdated, but still. But you did say that you find um, that usually... Th the men feel more comfortable in the in the male-only groups. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, but first they need to have the feeling that that is okay for them that to is, do it, of course. Right. Yeah, but when they decide it upon, then suddenly they become more open and more vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about something else that mm -hmm. you mentioned. 
you mentioned that sometimes you feel that, say, in the adoptee community, that adoptee women are not fully supporting adoptee men. Yeah. Can you explain that again? Oh, it's a complex issue, actually. Mm. There are three sides on that. One has to do with relationships. Yeah. Because many female adoptees, they do not uh, see these adoptee males as potential partners. Particularly in, in our white adoptive countries, yes. Yeah. 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 So that creates also rejection or feelings of rejection of by course, their own kind. Of but course, yeah. Let's say that it's not, of course, not really all kind, but their own kind, right? Yeah, in inverted commas, yeah. 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 And second is that many times when um, female adoptees look to their fellow uh, male adoptees and see them so vulnerable, mm. it projects their own vulnerability. Right, yes. And they do not want to see that. Yes. And that also creates the outcome that these men are not attractive for them either. So you have a double rejection in that case. Yes, because we, we still um, kind of deep down sometimes, yeah, we want men to be strong and uh, exactly. et cetera, stoic. Yeah. And third, yeah. many <coughs> female adoptees, they see no social economic future with adoptee males. Mm. And also find many adoptee males quite often disturbing in the direct environment they live in. Because other people might uh, refer to those adoptive males as part of their own history or their own kind. And many of those adoptive males, uh, sorry, the female males didn't like that. Sorry, what you do you mean the direct environment? Uh, for example, the first relationship I had with some female adoptees that, for example, she did not want to walk with me in the town hand in hand because she was afraid of what people would say about them. Right, that that maybe your people think you're tourists or something, or yeah, for example, Chinese or yeah. or yeah. migrant whatsoever. So yes. she decided to walk on the other side of the canal. Really? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and I thought that this was an individual case, but I heard many times from other other male adoptees mm. certain kinds of stories. Yeah. Yes. You know, I'm not surprised. I'm. Somehow it's um, it seems more acceptable, mm-hmm. like in your um, your white Western country, to be a mixed couple mm-hmm. rather than yeah two Koreans. That is, <laughs> actually, that is more accepted for uh, adoptive females instead of adoptive males. Right. I think I was exception because I had. Let's say white girlfriends. Yeah. But what I hear from other male adoptees, that was not that common. Right. Yeah. So, and also from researchers like Sniffa Peter Dijkstra about uh, the, the, the <coughs> marriage possibilities for adoptive males, and also from the research from Jarne Lindblad in Sweden, shows particularly the, the procreation possibilities for colored adoptive males. It's much lower than from uh, adoptive females. Yes, yes, there is. Um, there so is it's academic only now, research. It's now also uh, um, supported by academic research. Yes, but I already found it for many, many decades. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there was one study um, where they interviewed um, adoptee <coughs> females mm-hmm. who said that all. Like say, for example, um, Korean adoptive females who said, "Oh, I would, um, 
like maybe I, I would date um, Asian males, other Asian, not necessarily adopted, mm. but but not necessarily like I wouldn't consider them for a husband. Exactly. You know that kind of thing, and it's it's yeah, it's something that we don't want to, I think, really openly admit in our community. But that's the truth. We have also seen this about uh, women from the migrant groups. The same stories. Right. Yeah. So it's not a particular um, part of the, the, the adoption history, but it has also to do with migration. Yes. And also it has to do with the social economic status, and it has also to do with future perspectives of family building. Yes. And let's be honest, if you're smart, you think about it. And many mm. females did that. But it's hardly yeah. uh, nice to admit, right? To say, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, because we want to think that all oh, we um, we made a free choice. Yeah, we love this person. Yeah. It has nothing to do with our choice. Come on, doesn't have anything to do with Psycholo- race or status no, 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 no. or yeah. No. I mean, poly- psychological uh, statistics show that it's not true. Mm. That most of us are quite well aware what kind of partner we want to marry or not. Yeah, and that there are these factors that play in. It's not just it's not just love. Or no, biological factors, for example, it's <laughs> quite well known in analytical psychology that, um, that most women, they, they select men in a different way when they have their periods or not. <laughs> right, and also right. the, the facial expressions of men, that um, if the, the, the male face is more sacral, why you say this, more equal, that they feel they find this kind of men more attractive than men who doesn't have this kind of face. Oh, like sim- more symmetrical. Uh, yeah, symmetrical. Yes, exactly. Right. So there are a lot, lot of biological factors this plays also a role. Yeah, that we perhaps unaware of. And yeah. Also, the racial factors play a role. Mm. They did a research in the United States for many years. Uh, they they gave pictures to students and they had to choose based quite quickly based on pictures. They they felt that these men are uh, uh, marriage material or not. Mm. And eighty percent was white. Oh, of course, I even mean, for colored for colored uh, yeah. students. We, we, oh yeah, because you know we we do live in, still live in this like um kind of this white supremacist society. You know, we that's that's still a reality. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's okay, but just like admit it. Right? Yes. Oh well, I mean, I know that I, I feel that you know we'll, we have listeners who um, say are Korean adoptees like uh, partnered with other Korean adoptees and and I know that they might listen to this interview and feel that they are different. They are still a minority. Yes, I... And this is yes. quite still a, an, an exceptional group because in general they belong with I even two to 5% of the total number. Yes. So, come on. Mm-hmm. I'm not... I'm not saying that they are not there because I know them. Yeah, yeah. And I know almost every country couple. Yeah. But one doesn't say that all of us are like that. Right. No, I agree. And, uh, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and it's something, it's like I don't like to look at that about myself, but Why it's not? Because it's true. this part yes. of your shadow. Yeah. That is shadow work. Looking at it, say, yes, I am like that. Mm. Yes, I did the same thing. Yes, I chose this way, etc. Yeah. yeah. One last thing, I wonder if we can talk about this. Mm-hmm. We, ha- we have um, an interest in looking at this on our podcast mm-hmm. on the, this issue of, of adoptee suicide. Yeah. Um, 
And I guess it's been, we've, there's been a bit of conversation about it in our community, right? Um, mm-hmm. In the last couple of years, mm-hmm. um, there have been a number of, oh, I think there always were <sighs> Korean adoptee suicides um, occurring, but maybe mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, there's there've been some more prominent ones. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you, if you could, I, I mean, I know that from a systemic and mm-hmm. contextual approach yep. that that there are um, theories about the connection between adoptees and suicide. Mm-hmm. Would you like to share that? Or? Well, first thing is that uh, what we found out internationally that uh, if we talk about suicide rates among adoptees that uh, most possibly the Korean adoptees have the highest number. Right. So that's also quite intriguing to find out. Mm. Uh, in my opinion, it has partly to do from a systemic point of view that I follow on certain patterns of the Korean culture. Yes. Well, I mean, Korea also has yeah. a, a High has suicide rates, right? Mm. Uh, and also there's a systemic biological connection with that. Uh, second is that uh, in the countries that have been adopted to, that um, in healthcare it's not recognized as an, a link between adoption and suicide. So there are no um, healthcare workers who are alerted by that. Right. They're more referred like a personal state of being instead of a traumatized state of being. So that's also a point of attention. Yeah. And the third is that um, many adopters, adoptive parents, they, they were many times too late to uh, see how serious it was because it would... Um, give them a feeling that they, sh- they have to admit that the adoption was failed. This, this, this possibility of failure um, was also one of the reasons why many adopts didn't look for uh, assistance or any help in that case, or were too late. Yeah, there are so many issues. In my opinion, as, as a facilitator in the methodology I'm teaching is <clears throat> that we, as especially Korean adoptees, we hardly easily talk about this phenomenon while you already explained yourself that almost all of us have been thinking about this once in a while yeah I've thought about it it's yeah it's hard to admit right yeah because it means something might have a connection with abandonment and adoption yeah and we're not willing to admit it easily because that means also that um, if we say okay if it is correct that there is a link with abandonment adoption um should we, support, should we support inter-country adoption, yes or no? So there's right. always a political framework next yeah. to it. Yeah. Why well, I say try to skip that part. Just ask yourself, why does this idea of suicide come from? Yes. And try to feel deeply inside your body where is the source of this driver to end up your life. Mm. And many times it has to do with the low with a deep, deep feeling of loss. So yeah. we, we end up again at, at this point of grief. Yeah. And it's quite intriguing that many of choose rather to, to commit suicide than to work on grief. I ask sometimes to my clients, you have two possibilities. Let's yeah. say you have two possibilities. You can choose to do something with grief work yeah. or to commit suicide. 80% of, of them say, Oh, I would rather kill myself. It seems easier. It seems, seems like easy. the easier option. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And that means that they're already too tired. Yes, I think, I wonder, um, you know, because sometimes you see people like late 30s or uh, early 40s who commit suicide and I wonder if they're just really tired. If they were just, like maybe... They're tired because in that stage of your life you have to have found solid foundation for the rest of your life. Yes. And if you were not successful on that, yes. then the future becomes quite a hassle, right? Mm. Mm. So also in general psychology we see this back by men. When they suddenly wake up and they suddenly conclude that, oh shit, uh, I didn't build any solid fundament for the rest of my life. Where should I go from here? Mm. I mean, it's not a uh, secret that if you compare suicide with men and women, that the, men, uh, the male rates are quite higher. Yes. And also in yes. that stage, 30, 40, 50s. Right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a difficult topic, Hannah. Yeah. Right? But um, we should talk about it. Yes. Because if we don't talk about it, it will keep going on. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're... Um, like individually reluctant to acknowledge, to admit, oh, you know, I, I've been there. I thought about this at one stage. It, cro it seemed like some kind of way out or some, you know, but I think, you know, we're afraid to talk about that because we don't want to be individually stigmatized. You know, we don't want, uh, we, <laughs> we don't want to um, be dismissed as like some kind of person with too many issues or something like that, right? Oh, come but on, we have issues. Yeah. Let's be honest. Doesn't mean that you have twenty four seven issues. Yeah. <laughs> you only have once while you have them. Yeah. Yeah. And in generally a lot of people in society are pathological. Hmm. You mean we if you would use the DSM, I'm sure we, we score at least something. ten, right? <laughs> you could find something yeah. to um so worth medicating. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. you should not be ashamed of that. Mm. You should just be honest. And that's what I already told. If you're able to be honest, courageous, and take responsibility, and yeah. then there's a way out. If we wrap up, we, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, sorry to <laughs> end on that note, no, but, no, no. Um, it's okay. so we will link your website, um, mm -hmm. and so at the moment you are... Oh, then I have to update it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've been updated for a long time, okay, okay I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, so you're currently um, offering different kinds of workshops using this approach yes. internationally, yes. mainly in Europe. Yes. Um, but you're also willing to tra to travel to um, different countries if, if people want to get in touch with you, right? And of organize course, something. Of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. But I have no time and no energy to organize it myself. So if people say I'm going to organize it, yes, you only need to come. Then there's no problem. Okay. Um, and you're also training um, your training facilitators in yes. this method. Yeah, correct. And some of them are ad also adoptees. Yeah, also. Yeah. yeah. Some are quite successful already yeah. in the Netherlands. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. And I noticed, I think online, you, so you're also doing some kind of coaching specifically for adoptees? Yeah. I have yeah. four practices in, uh, in the Netherlands. Yeah. 
and also once in a while in Belgium and have remote counseling with people from oh, Australia okay. actually and also oh, really? sometimes United States yes okay because they live too far away but they, they by Skype or whatsoever do you still use the same systemic uh, constellations approach or how d- what approach do you use depends in on the, the person Skype? depends on the person oh, okay yeah. but sometimes I use yeah. the same kind of approach yeah. I let them see something of some pictures or cho- let oh. them choose Right. Okay. We do some distance work, like uh, sometimes I show them one picture in front of them and one behind. Yes. And then they can see, okay, how do you feel about that? Or if I change the situation, they can, oh, how do I feel about that, etc. So you can still incorporate the body yeah, um, yeah, online. Yeah. 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 And I'm just curious, do you find that, that adoptee coaching, like, very like satisfying both professionally and personally yes for you yeah mm, satisfying satisfying would not be the good word but um, fulfilling yeah maybe that's better fulfilling yeah. because I see what it does to adoptees yeah and how they develop rapidly in a year yeah that is yeah. the fulfilling part of it I mean I mean that's what we <laughs> you know a lot of us spent a lot of time searching for different therapists and, mm-hmm. and different different types of methods and people who understood mm-hmm. um, yeah I know yeah it's a huge lack <laughs> everywhere yeah. yeah that's why I train them I have my own academy in the Netherlands so yeah. I also teach adoptees to become coaches and counselors themselves wow yeah. yeah do you really feel like this this was always your true calling this work no 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 no? No. Well, I mean, but do you feel that now you've found your, your no. true calling in life? I'm not sure if this is my true calling, but it feels right. So okay. as long as it feels right, I will do it. Yeah. yeah. It's also very dangerous to follow your true calling. It can be also be an entangled dynamic. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, That's why right. I became a quite... Uh, careful about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting too. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Thank you so much for your yeah, time. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was so nice talking to you, Hannes, as always. <laughs> yeah. Um, and thank you for doing all of this work on yourself and being a role model and a mentor and a coach in our community. Oh, you're yeah, the first one who says you. that, so no. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. But. For more information about Hilbrandt and the systemic approach, you can visit his website at www.adoptionconstellations.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. As always, if you like what you hear, please rate and review us wherever you're listening or shoot us an email to adoptedfeels at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to support the podcast from as little as a dollar a month. Find us at patreon.com forward slash adoptedfeels. <laughs>